You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we welcome you to Writers Live. So thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, so tonight we welcome Michael Fabi, author of Crash Back, The Power and Clash Between the U.S. and China in the Pacific. Fabi has reported on military and naval affairs for most of his career, winning the prestigious Timothy White Award. With information culled through unparalleled access to allies, partners, and adversaries, the Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist predicts the next great struggle between military superpowers that will play out in the Pacific Ocean, an ocean named for being peaceful that is anything but peaceful. Fabi shows that mutual cooperation hangs in precarious balance in this warm war barely held together by an American concept of the status quo while the Chinese build their navy to become the superpower they believe that they will be in the future. Crashback shows how the conflict has started and may continue to unfold. So please give a warm welcome to Michael Fabi. I mean, for all the, the verbal 
what's going on between Washington right now and going on in North Korea. I mean, no one thinks for a second that North Korea could threaten the U.S. as a whole and take away what we've come to look at as American life. There's no, North Korea doesn't have the economic structure to do that. It doesn't have the history. It doesn't have the leadership. It doesn't have the military. It has none of that. China has all that. In fact, it's the only country that really does. And so right now, what we have to do is we have to look at this, this whole North Korea situation as a way to make sure that we can secure and maintain our place, our importance in that part of the world. Because what China's managed to do, using North Korea, is they managed to make themselves as being the, the common ones out there. For, for decades, it's been the U.S. predictability out there. And the way that, you know, as the old saying goes, to speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, we, you know, we spoke softly and big aircraft carriers. And so for all these decades, we, we've never had to like, flex any muscle other than just be out there, be present. And everyone was rest assured, well, the U.S. has got our backs. But lately, because of the change administration, it's become a change in attitude, if you will. And so now there's a lot of yelling and screaming out there. And there's even a question of whether or not our friends, our longtime friends, longtime allies, longtime partners, are worth the trouble. Or is it worth the trouble to you know, be the world's cop? Um, without even thinking for one moment that the one country has benefited the most over the decades of being the world's cop has been the US. The US has been the one that has been able to get the cheapest goods and get these trade deals and everything like that that allows us to be able to, to go out with, you know, compared to our parts of the world, find the same thing we want relatively easily and cheaply. And so right now what we have to do is, is look at all this and, and rethink this, this attitude of treating these partners like almost like disposable um, friends. I mean, it's, it's a point now where you have folks in Australia rethinking whether or not it's worth it to be such an ally of the United States. People throughout Asia are questioning whether or not the U.S. will have it, their back in any kind of major confrontation. And as a result, for the first time, they're actually looking at China as someone who is a viable alternative. And if that were to happen, if these countries were to pull away from the U.S., move toward China, and then, then without even firing a shot, without even you know, putting any super military might on the table, China will wind up ruling the seas, ruling the air out there, and as a result, the U.S. could become a second-tier country for the first time ever. So, any questions? Should I? Sure. Um. And I'm looking forward to reading the book, and I'm going to get a copy of it for my son too, who's also in the Navy. It was in the Navy for five years. Um, but I'm wondering what motivated you to get into this line of journalism about the military and about the Navy. Um, the military specifically. 
was after 9-11, I just felt that with everything that was going on, um, I was too old to, to try to join and serve myself and everything like that, but I thought everything that was going on, that it was really important um, to write about what was going on, um, to tell their stories, um, to make sure um, that they were getting the kind of funding and support and everything like that that they, that they needed and deserved. Um, as a sport of Navy, I've always had an interest in, in things maritime. Um, and I think I'm sure back then, part of my, my father had been a Marine. And so there was all this sort of, you know, um, I mean, you know, he had that Marine swagger about him um, type of thing. And, and so, uh, and I've always enjoyed, as I started covering things on the military a little bit, when I got to come to Marines and Navy folks, just enjoyed the way they, they look at everything. Uh, you know, you go on these ships, and you go out, you know, billion-dollar ships, equipment worth tens, not hundred millions of dollars, you know, all every place, and very rarely does it work, work like it's supposed to. You know, it's not the first time, now, almost ever. I mean, you're at sea, you're rocking and rolling all over the place, the weather's horrible, uh, you've got corrosion to deal with, you've got the wind, you've got everything, all the elements, and what these people are able to do is, to work around, find ways to make things work. I mean, okay, well that's not working, but I wanted to do this. And as one of the captain told me, I got a bunch of guys in that. And that's what they were. They were just amazing, adaptable, clever people. And they, they always just looked at their their job in two ways. One is, you know, you want to make sure that you, you, there's many comings and goings, that they all match up. Um, and the other is that um, in certainly in the last 15, 20 years, probably more, but definitely the last 15, 20 years, the folks who are in the service, period, um, are very patriotic. They are extremely patriotic. And it's not in my country very long, because they are taught to question things they do. But there's a real sense of, of, of a sense, I am doing this, not for a country, but fellow Americans. Um, and so I, I just wanted to write about that. I just thought that was just fun to cover. It was interesting to cover. It was important to cover. country could be thrown into the mix with either the next superpower, um, I mean, I know obviously China, but if we're so focused right now on North Korea, when our focuses should be other places, what other countries do you think um, could actually be poten I guess potential allies we're looking to? Do you mean um, countries we can look up or, or country, countries we should worry about? I think more work with. Okay, well, well yeah. um, so right now, I mean, you know, for example, I, I, um, I think there's, there's some damage control that needs to be done. And I'll start with Western Pacific. Um, it's, it's amazing to me, for example, to realize that, that South Korea and China just recently kind of 
announced an agreement where they were going to move closer together, given everything that's going on, and even rethinking putting the, mil the missile defense system we just put there. Um, and so we, we, our relationship out in the Western Pacific now has been, and it was, this, is, this predates Trump, because during Obama years, there, was, there, were, there were times, and even before that, but certainly during Obama years, there were times when some of the folks out there in the Philippines, for example, um, who would say, hey, um, China's getting in our grill, China's doing this, that, and we were just, like, sorry to hear that, you know, we really weren't engaging. Um, and so there's that damage control that has to be done with the South Korea. I think we need to do more with Japan than we're already doing. Uh, but part of that, I think, is going to require Japan to sort of uh, get over World War II and really just basically develop a full-out military. Um, there's a, within Japan especially, but regionally, there's a real fear of that because of what will happen just before World War II and World War II. Um, but right now, Japan uh, shares, they buy a lot of equipment from us, and that kind of partnership that was developed more closely could really um, make a force to be reckoned with. Um, and, you know, the old saying is, uh, keep your, your friends closer and your enemies closer. And so, therefore, I think we need to make sure, not only lines of communication, they open China. But I think we need to embrace them more on certain things. But we have to realize that in every instance, China has an agenda. Um, sometimes it, it seems that we've gone in with this idea, oh, we'll just have a military exercise together and just scream, well, you know. But, but China is going there very specifically learn how we do this, that, and the other thing. And we have to recognize that. We have to, we have to I mean, basically, if you look at it, as I call it in the book, a war war. China's been fighting this world war since the mid-90s and they said carriers are going to keep them from harassing Taiwan. We've been acting like it doesn't even exist. And when you have one side fighting it and their side like it doesn't exist, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it's pretty obvious who's going, to, who's going to be winning. And China has been winning in many ways um, in this, this whole scenario. So I, I think that out in that way, we really have to look to our old-time ties and the one exception of, of, of not, not an all-time time that is an exception, but the one country or whatever that we have a, a whole new potential relationship with is Vietnam. Um, right now, Vietnam and the U.S. do these things called these naval engagements. They're not exercises, but yeah. It's sort of just playing together a little bit of the same sandbox. Um, and right now, Vietnam has been reaching out to the U.S. little by little. Vietnam has a long history of being a thorn in China's side. And so it, it would be to our benefit definitely to increase Vietnam a lot more. On the other side of the globe, um, we have really tarnished our relationship with NATO. And right now, if you, in every conversation that the U.S. naval leaders start with at conferences before Congress, wherever they are, they will say China and Russia. 
They are improving greatly their naval capability. They're not afraid to use it. And we have to, we have to recognize them for, for the potential threats they represent. And so right now, in some, I see some of the same things happening with Russia as we're happening with China. That we're sort of looking the other way, we've been looking the other way when Russia was doing certain things. And as a result, and at the same time, we've been dissing, we've been really um, putting some of our long-time allies that are, that are ringer. Um, I think we have to rethink that. Because other countries are seeing the benefit of forming alliances outside of the U.S. And if that were to happen, if the U.S. were to be isolated, then all of a sudden we are, we are out of the trade game. We do not get to set the standards that we set. Um, you might have something where the US, right now the U.S. dollar sets the standard for the whole economic system we're playing. I just see a future where it's not the case anymore. Does that answer your question? I think I read recently that uh, Congress approved a huge amount, like 700 billion or some very large figure for the military that exceeded even what President Trump was asking for. And so it doesn't seem to be an issue of money as much as, I guess I'm asking, what is the issue? If, if Congress is willing to give whatever money and more so than is being asked for, what is, what's the big issue? We could write a whole other series of books on that one. Okay. Um, but, but, I mean, it, it, there are some very basic things with that. Um, your premise is actually spot on. It's not a matter of not having enough money. It's a matter of that money being spent wisely. And, but it would be a mistake to say the Pentagon doesn't spend enough money wisely. Because oftentimes, the Pentagon will come up with a plan that actually is a you know, pretty good spending strategy. But Congress, by law, will mandate that they have to have certain things, certain places. A lot of this is to satisfy government constituents and things like that. Um, I mean, a case in point is that. For years, the, the U.S. Navy has been trying to get rid of the cruisers. Now, I don't personally agree with this one. I think the cruisers are something that should be, you know. However, I've said that um, there are there are ideas to develop other ships later on that would be even more powerful and have more capability. But Congress has refused to allow the Navy to retire these warships. That means they have to spend all the money to upkeep them and spend money for the personnel for them. Same thing with closing certain military installations. There's, there's, there's so much involvement that Congress, yeah, how Congress inserts itself into the actual spending of the money, that it just creates all kinds of problems. And the other part of this too is that in order to make sure that they're spending the money as widely as they should. They've created a bureaucracy for acquisition that is just most painful, onerous, and expensive. They have a whole s series of steps they have to take that many times duplicate 
previous steps uh, in many ways are obsolete now because of the, you know, it used to be before you had the prototype, test the prototype, everything like that. With the simulations they have now, the technology they have now, they can do a lot more on the computer, but they can't do that now because by law they have to follow certain steps and things like that. It's the whole process for that hasn't been looked at since you know, since the 80s, the Cold War, and going back to the 60s. And that's something they really need to do. But you know, you have whole um, many kingdoms, if you will, built up within the, within the Pentagon, the people whose jobs and careers depend on that kind of acquisition process. And so that's really tough to get into when you have that, and how to get to rid of the part. So there is there is enough money out there. But it's not being spent the way it should be, and it's not necessarily the Pentagon's fault. In fact, in many cases, it's not. Um, and there's pl it, plenty of people argue um, that you know, the GDP is our first product. We spend very little on our military compared to other countries. But at the same time, our GDP is so big <laughs> that we spend a lot of money from the military. Um, and there's a lot of other countries use their militaries. I mean, they have border conflicts. Um, they use the militaries um, and many times, you know, military police set up and stuff like that. So they're spending money for internal security more than external security. Whereas the U.S., our military is all for external security, you know, pretty much. I mean, you know, you know we don't have, you know, naval forces patrolling the U.S. coastline. Uh, but most other countries, that's what they did, you know. So, anyways, that kind of, that touches it. That's, that's the veneer of, of you know all the stuff that goes on with uh, the spending. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money that's being spent on the military. Um, a lot could be spent more wisely, but there's just there's politics. It really gets into a lot of politics. Well, and speaking of politics, I've often thought that every senator uh, has to have part of that. Uh, money in his district, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the military has been very good at spreading um, all the uh, contracts. contracts and everything mm -hmm. else around to all the different districts. But I guess my, my next question is, if you, you alluded early or uh, earlier to the fact that things have changed now with this administration, mm -hmm. So if you could have the ear, if you could go into the Oval Office and have 15, 30 minutes with the occupant in the Oval Office now, what would you advise him? Is, is this specific to China or China? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would, I would, make sure, or try to make sure, that the present occupant, occupant understood completely that it's in China. Because right now, you know, just look at the headlines, so it's all North Korea right now. And, and, it's, and everyone seems to be willing to do everything they can to sort of, you know, dampen this or address this or whatever. 
And if you remember early on, there was this whole thing of, um, oh, uh, Trump was saying President Xi is going to help us. I thought President Xi is going to help us. And I, I wish I, I, you know, two minutes back then, I would have said to him, it didn't work for Nixon in Vietnam. <laughs> and, and there's been other presidents in, in, in other countries before and after that. And it's not work here. Because the fact of the matter is, it is to China's benefit to have an unstable Western Pacific caused by another country. It's their benefit. Um, because for a few reasons. One is, when everyone's looking over at North Korea and no one's looking at China, and since then China's launched its own carrier, its own first carrier, a quota carrier for finality, it built and launched its own carrier. It put out a 10,000 ton destroyer, which is almost one and a half. It's, you know, the displacement, the size, the, you know, the weight of one of our destroyers. And it's been, again, getting very aggressive in South China Sea. Well, everyone's looking over North Korea. And the other part is something that's, that's been happening, and that's that China now is, again, seen as this voice of reason over there. You have, you know, over North Korea, a leader who is, you know, some, some say psychotic, some say really crappy, whatever it is, is someone who definitely, you know, is unpredictable and can just raise tackles on the place. But in many ways, same thing can be said at Washington. Washington leaders definitely unpredictable and raising tackles. And so you now have President Xi in China saying, okay, you know, while these two you know, duke it out, I'm going to be, you know, I'm the one that's going to like, come to me, you, you can lean on me, I'll, I'll make you hide behind me, everything will be okay. And while he's doing this, I mean, he now has a mass more power than any leader since now. Um, you know, oh, this, this is like almost pretty quietly. But basically, well, everyone else is looking someplace else, or everyone's just focused someplace else. She now has become the most powerful modern Chinese leader. Um, he has presented China as the alternative, almost was a peaceful alternative in the Western Pacific to the U.S. and it's playing up. Um, and he's doing this while he's being making aggressive moves in the South China Sea and putting out a bigger, stronger navy. And so, you know, my my advice to to document right now would be put your, you know, you're taking your eye off the ball, put your eye back on the ball. Um, the fact of the matter is, the only reason North Korea is such a big deal is because the current administration has made a big deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, if, if, if the current administration had, had taken an attack of a sort of addressing it, you know, addressing it more quietly, if you will, or, or not acting a tit for tat or whatever, they would not, you know, it's almost like he's creating a modern day capture. So you have this advice for the current administration, um, and you've written crash back, you're paying attention, you've been paying attention. Why do you think our politicians and other journalists haven't been paying as much attention to China as they make this shift? Or maybe why it's not in the headlines. 
Well, China, I mean, China wasn't an ally to come back here three years. It, I mean, North Korea, missile, nuclear warhead. You can picture that, okay? You know, you can you can think back to the movies from Doctor Strange Love to the day after. I mean, everyone knows. You know, we've had movies about the, the nuclear. I mean, so this is something everyone can picture. This is this is this is the boogeyman on the TV screen, okay? So everyone picture that. But this whole idea of a country that is slowly, surely, it's like the, the tide coming in and slowly growing the way and everything like that. It's almost like climate change in a way, but it's a political climate change, right? But it's, it's hard for people to like really, you know, wrap their minds around, always keep it wrapped around for a long time, for same time. And so what China has done is like, they've gone to South China Sea and they'll, they'll, they'll build up on, on, on one of the rings out there, you know, build some. And everyone will say, oh, look, we're going now. They don't do anything for a while. You know, they, don't, they don't want to be in the headlines and news that way. They'd rather just slowly but surely kind of creep out, establish um, one of the people in their book um, called Salami Slicing. Kind of a little piece of salami, but the salami in this case is South China Sea or East China Sea. And it's a little bit at a time. And so the, I, I think that for the most part it's because uh, we become a big new society, um, that we have the attention span of hungry ants um, when it comes to, to news um, of the day kind of thing. It, you know, it's all in the tweet, right? Um, and so this kind of thing just, you know, it, it just kind of like just break below the radar um, and it's, it's too much to think about. You know, you know too much to, you know, there, there have been some folks out there, um, the New Yorkers had pieces, you know, even throughout all this, Atlantic, you know, Atlantic Council, um, Atlantic Citizens, certainly had things out there. But, you know, it's not the, it's not the missile, I mean, fault. you get this picture of the missile flying off and, you know, you just see your mind's eye, so that's what I think it is. Well, who do you hope reads your book if, if we all have such a short attention span? How, who did you write the book for? Well, first of all, I hope to, to folks at sea read the book, the sailors, especially the sailors, um, the Marines, um, because especially once you're about to go out to the West Pacific, um, they get a taste for it. I hope, quite honestly, that, that you know, everyday folks read the book, because I don't think they realize how close we've come a couple times and how close we're getting to some kind of confrontation out there. You know, that, again, I mean, um, worst case scenario, North Korea fires off some missiles. They wouldn't even, one or two hits. Okay, what do you think is going to happen to North Korea? At that point in time, I mean, seriously, it is now. But with against China, that's not the same case. We can't, we can't match. We can't just annihilate China. We actually thought one time, Secretary of Defense Mattis actually thought that we don't want to annihilate North Korea, which implies we could if we wanted to, right? No one's saying that about China because that's not a possibility for us. That's not going to happen. And North Korea, all it has are its missiles. 
China has an incredibly strong Navy, has a pretty darn good Air Force right now, an incredible missile corps, fantastic space systems, military space systems. You know, so there, there's a lot there. So I, I would, in, uh, finally, I would suggest that maybe someone who should read your book are the U.S. Senators. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's send them copies. Uh, you know, it's, um, what, what I found surprising is that um, in, in researching the book, you know, I've talked to a, a few, more con believe it or not, more congressmen and senators um, who were quite aware there, there, there was actually a China caucus. In, in, in Washington among the lawmakers, um, who had been warning, who had been sounding the warning bell. Um, the, the one of them was Randy Forrest, who recently lost the re-election. Uh, he's now teaching in War College. And Randy was telling me that eons ago, um, eons being, you know, like a few years ago, about seven, eight years ago now, that he had gone on a kind of just backbiting tour to China and visiting. He went to some shipyards. Now, Randy's district includes Newport New Shipbuilding, which makes some carriers. And he's down a shipyard, he came back, got at some point with some people in the Pentagon and said, they're going to build carriers. And the Pentagon folks were laughing at him. I said, China. Because that's, that's been our attitude. Oh, China. I mean, you know, that has been our attitude going back even centuries. And he said, I'm telling you, my district includes Newport Shipbuilding. I've been there many times. I know that steel when I see it. He was spot on. He was spot on. And, and that's the thing is that, that there are plenty of people out there who, not plenty, but a few people out there, but they're just not, it, it just doesn't grab everyone's attention. You know, there's just not enough of them. Um, again, China is really good about pushing things and pulling pull back. 2007, I see it forever now, ago now, but um, the Pentagon has said, there's no way China can shoot down a satellite in space, you know, from, from, from around. They don't have the capability. Almost right after they put out a report that year saying that, China did it. Like, Asia, especially China, has had this ability, and what they did is they backed off. So they're very... They understand American culture better, I think, than Americans do. China knows, all right, we can, we can push so far, but if we, we back off a little bit, then it's okay. We just let things quiet down. And so, I, and because of that, it's really hard for like a Randy Forbes in the world. Um, Admiral Harris, who's now in the Pacific Command, who's been warning, he's the one who said, we put up a wall of sand, you know, a great wall, a wall of sand on the Pacific building these islands and everything like that. It's really hard for them to, you know, to keep up the momentum of the concern that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And we, we're not, you know, they, they haven't responded. They haven't put this on directly. And they know by not doing that, that, you know, Americans are loathed for that kind of confrontation. But meanwhile, we're sending out our sailors, especially, you know, at the sea, and saying, Okay, keep an eye on them, but don't get too close. Um, but you gotta find out about them, and then there's one of the scenes in the book that describes how we sent a cruiser out um, to spy on the first carrier operations and um, almost getting cracked, you know, had to decide between either taking out the ships with those missiles 
collide, you know, basically slicing through one of the Chinese amphibious ships or deal with what they call a crash pack. That's kind of the book. They're going to mercy full stop. And that's what they did. They had to slam on the brakes. And as a result, you know, China gained their face. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you very, very much. This has been very interesting. I'm wondering if you have a website. I do. It's, uh, it's just my name, michaelfaby.com. So. Spell, spell that? Sure. Um, F-A-B-E-R. Okay. Yeah, so. Great. Yeah, so yeah, that's actually some um, decent pictures from some from the Chinese destroyer. As a really, really nice pictures of some of our own um, ships and systems and Indian folks. Too. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.